We all know it's important to develop a more inclusive workforce if we want to decrease anxiety levels and get everyone involved. The big question is, how? I'm Chester Elton, and this is my co-author and dear friend, Adrian Gustin. Well, thanks, Chess. Yeah, today our guest is going to help us identify the triggers that undermine our ability to collaborate, and she's going to give us specific ways we can harness the power of we. And as always, we hope the time you spend with us will help reduce the stigma of anxiety at work and in your personal life. So with us today is our dear friend, Sally Helgeson, the world's premier expert on women's leadership. She has been included into the Thinker's 50 Hall of Fame and is ranked number three in leadership by Global Gurus. Her most recent book, Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace, published in February by Hachette. Sally is a fellow member of the 100 Coaches Network, and we are delighted to have you on our podcast today. Sally, welcome. Thank you, Chester, and thank you, Adrian. It's wonderful to be with you both. Oh, well, we're thrilled to have our good friend Sally with us. And, you know, we wanted to start with this idea of the mental health discussion, which, which you know, the good thing, if there's a good thing from the pandemic, it's actually increased in society. But with this, there's the realization certain groups are more at risk than others, and in part because of the obstacles they face being accepted and heard within the workplace. And this is where, you know, your new book, Rising Together, comes in. So you've identified eight triggers that, we, that, that do what you call inhibits connection. So explain what this trigger is in this connection and, and tell us about some of the things that you found that can hinder connection. Yeah, a, a trigger is essentially an environmental situation or stimulus that evokes an emotional response in us. Now, the emotional response is not the problem. We all are likely to be triggered and we cannot control them because they are environmental. But, um, but we can control how we use our response uh, to be more effective or to undermine us. Uh, for example, uh, triggers often cause us to revert to a sort of stock response, and this can often uh, 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 this can operate a lot across boundaries like racial, ethnic, gender, uh, or age divides. Oh, young people are always on their phone. Oh, men cannot listen to women. Oh, women go on forever. Uh, so we revert to those stock responses. And we get invested in those stories and they stop our growth and they inhibit our ability to build relationships with people we may perceive as different from ourselves. So what I do in Rising Together is I provide a lot of specific ways we can address uh, individual triggers, triggers around visibility, around confidence, around humor, around fairness. That's a big one. Uh, around communication, and also provide some good coaching-based practices for being able to address triggers in general, one of which is to rewrite our own script uh, to make it more positive and uh, get rid of the stock response. It is so interesting. We really do have those stock responses. And uh, you put it in context for me. You thought, yep, I've done every one of those. I've, you know, I, I look at Adrian and go, he just goes on and on and on. He just does. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. You look at me as, you know, this kind of young Gen Z. Yeah. Kind of always on his phone. Always. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Sally, we, we write about this. Uh, 
you know, that, how important it is to connect with meaningful relationships at work as well. And you mentioned this, too, in explaining how to focus on common goals and behaviors, that that's actually more important than focusing on differences. So what sort of behaviors are important to keep in mind in order to create that healthy, inclusive culture? Well, you know, the ability to listen and how you listen and also how you demonstrate that you are listening. One great thing I learned from actually being fortunate enough to spend time with Peter Drucker was that he always spoke last in a meeting. And this enabled him to hear, to make sure he heard every other voice in the room. And also people didn't short circuit what they were going to say in order to try to agree with him. Uh, but probably the primary, uh, and you know, nominating people, uh, trying to have, provide the kind of support we provide in 100 coaches to people, uh, boost their visibility, shine the spotlight on them. But I think the primary uh, behavior, the overarching behavior that I focus on in this book is giving people the benefit of our goodwill. And that's where pushing back against the stock response comes in, rather than, oh, he always does that. Of you know, oh, I see, I'm a little triggered by this, uh, but uh, he probably didn't mean it that way, or maybe I'm taking it in a way he did not intend, or maybe he's having a terrible day, or maybe he had a problem with his kids this morning. You know, giving someone the benefit of the doubt of our goodwill even if we don't necessarily believe that positive story we're telling ourselves, it can still be very, very effective in helping us build relationships across divides. So I want you to put this to work for us right now, Sally. We'll, we'll give you a little push because, uh, um, you know, I was talking to one leader recently and they said, we are having political divides come into our workplace. Um, and we've we've been having to tell people, okay, stop talking about that. Um, but that's happening right now. We're living, in, unfortunately, in a politically divided culture, no matter where you are in the world, but especially here in the U.S. So how can leaders keep teams and individuals focused on common goals and maybe away from divisive issues without squelching all all sorts of talk and debate. Yeah, you know, the squelching is becoming increasingly ineffective. Um, there are two things at work here. Number one, leaders need to make clear, we are not policing your thoughts. You are welcome to have whatever thoughts and opinions in the world you want to have. We're not addressing those. Um, but we do want to make sure that the actions from people in our organization, on our team, serve collaboration. So we, and that's why in the book, I really focus on the whole idea of behaviors, not unconscious bias. You know, who cares what's running through our heads? The important thing is how we act, how we behave. So two things leaders can do. Number one is they can articulate a set of behaviors and practices. Our mutual friend uh, and friend of Marshall, Alan Mulally, did this brilliantly at Ford. Uh, when he said, there are only two rules here. Number one, you cannot directly criticize what someone presents in a meeting. You can't do that. And number two, there's not going to be gossiping and backbiting about other people. Those are the two rules we have here. And if anyone is uncomfortable with that, 
you might consider looking for alternate employment because that is the fundamental, the bedrock of behavior that we expect here. So setting those very clear behavioral standards and making clear that you're not trying to uh, be thought police is really, really helpful. The other thing is I think this alternate script approach can be very, very helpful. That rather than just saying, don't talk about that, don't talk about that, or that's off limits, saying, okay, let us can let us rewrite some scripts for one another. Instead of, you know, oh, that person is clearly an elitist or uh, 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 that person's lacking in education and watches the, lo- the wrong news station, why don't we tell ourselves a different story? What could a good story be? What could be a positive story? This person is showing, showing loyalty to uh, his or her family of origins. This uh, or that person is showing loyalty uh, to his or her uh, religious faith. What is a positive way to frame this? Uh, and then let's act like we believe that instead of, instead of the other thing. It is our choice. We have a choice. Uh, to decide how we're going to interpret something. I, I really appreciate you saying, you know, write a better story. You know, give people, we talk about assume positive intent, right? Say, look, there's a reason behind it, and it's 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 probably a better story than you're telling yourself, as the, to use your words. And, you know, I think this comes down to, you know, bringing your authentic self to work, right? We talk a lot about that, about transparency, the blurring of the lines between your personal life and and your work life and for some people it's very easy to bring their authentic self to work right uh, for others they're thinking well in order for me to fit in i've got to kind of hide who i really am right i can't talk about family i can't talk about faith or or whatever it might be and that causes a lot of emotional strain and stress right uh, professionalism dictates that we show up to work and that we do good work right and that some of our personalities and some of our personalities needs to be separated from work. So there's this dynamic, right? So can you explain how we might find that balance of authenticity in the workplace without completely trying to reinvent ourselves every time we walk through the door to work? Well, we certainly don't want to do that because that is going to be, that is the definition of a stressful situation. And you're exactly right, Chester, right. in pointing out that part of the reason I think we have so much emphasis now on your authentic self and being your authentic self at work is that a lot of people felt for a long time that they did not have the option to be truthful about who they were in the workplace, or it would be highly problematic. So there's kind of a, an idea that, you know, have to bring everything to the workplace. Two things I think. I don't think this total emphasis on your authentic self is always that helpful. Number one, people who are, are quite young in the workplace don't necessarily have a feeling of who their authentic self is. I know that I didn't. I really struggled with that when I was younger. Who am I? You know, am I this? Am I that? So being told to bring my authentic self would have been somewhat paralyzing. And I see this in younger people I work with. You know, I'm not quite sure. You know, I feel like I need to know exactly who I am, but I don't. So that's an important consideration. I also think that for people struggling with, you know, in this situation, should I be authentic or professional? Um, it's often better to revert to the professional and see how that works. Because if we inhabit something 
if we act like something, we start to learn how to do that more effectively. And one of the things I say over and over in Rising Together, one of the real presumptions here is it is easier to act our way into a new way of thinking than to think our way into a new way of acting. So if we can act our way into feeling as if I am a professional, then that will begin to reconcile with our quest for authenticity. And that authenticity thing can also often be used as, you know, I call them like I see it. You know, I'm not politically correct here. I say mm -hmm. that I speak the truth. And then you're, you know, offending half the people in the room. So that's not serving anybody. I like this. This is good coaching you're giving, especially to, to younger people coming into the workplace is, yeah, while you're figuring out where you are, who you are, be professional. <laughs> and it's nothing wrong with that. And that's actually a good advice. Hey, how can people learn more about your work, Sally? Where would you send them? Well, I'm pretty easy to find, uh, certainly on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, and my website, sallyhelgeson.com. And I have a contact button there so people can get in touch with me by email, which is my preferred uh, way to uh, communicate. So uh, you talk about humor in the book, which I think is great, you know, and uh, I'm looking at my uh, co-author there, Chester Elton, you know, like 20 years ago, when we started working together. I, I remember being in a meeting with Chester and, uh, you know, I didn't know just that well, but we were talking about things and all of a sudden, you know, somebody was getting dumped on and dumped on and, and Chester says, uh, Hey, are you starting to feel like Luke Skywalker in the in the trash compactor? You know, and everybody <laughs> laughed, and it just sort of broke up a meeting that was that was being really tense and stiff. And you know, Jess has, has always been very good at using humor right. Like that was very good. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, we use humor to poke people, and and as you just mentioned earlier with Alan Mulally, you know, it's we make fun of others. It, it's a little skill, right, in getting humor right, but we don't want to not do it. So walk us through that. We really don't want to lose humor in the workplace. It is very important, as you point out, for diffusing tension and as a bonding mechanism. We bond through humor because it evokes warm feelings in us and we feel connected to the person who makes us laugh. The problem is these days there's so much sensitivity that people are, are often inhibited about using humor. And I know I have talked to leaders, um, whether they're corporate leaders or, or, or people who, you know, gurus who work with people who have said, I've stopped using humor because it feels like you can always offend someone. We don't want to go there. So I think there are two things. First of all, we want to set a presumption. It goes back to this idea of giving people the benefit of our goodwill. So someone told a stupid joke once. They apologize for it. They say, mm, I know I, I, that was a misfire. We need to let it go. We don't want to brand that person as, you know, what, whatever we might want to brand them for because they told a joke that was to some degree managed to offend somebody in the room because that's going to happen a lot these days. So we don't want to do that. Uh, on the other hand, we want to be very clear that you know, racial, sexual, et cetera, slurs are not acceptable. So I think what we want to do is we want to rescue humor in the workplace by setting a couple clear parameters and saying, for example, this is 
could be a problem these days because you may not have considered that somebody would have someone in their family who had this medical condition or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, they, they, so you can't make a presumption about people these days by looking at them, what their lives are like. So we want to set those parameters and then we want to experiment with it. But we, as we experiment with it, we want to understand that people will make mistakes and misfires. So we can't let humor go in the workplace or it's going to be very hard to motivate ourselves to show up for work. Yeah, humor, it really does cut both ways. I, I, I like the fact that you're saying draw a few parameters. You know, you don't have to, like you say, stifle or be the, the monitor. I, I think one of the things with humor that people get very concerned about is there's always kind of this feeling that if I say something just a little off, there's somebody waiting to say, I got you. Yeah. I got you, you know, and and there's the danger there. You know, with all this, we're talking about authentic self and being professional and so on. Um, we're always interested in, in personal, you know, rituals and, and, and traditions that you have to keep yourself. You know, I mean, you've written this book, you're going on all these tours and, you know, you're coaching all these high potential leaders and you're under a lot of stress. What are some of the things you do, Sally, to keep yourself in a good frame of mind and, and a good sense of humor <laughs> as you go through your day? Well, two things I try to do. I'm really disciplined about how I use my phone. Uh, I keep it downstairs at night when I'm home uh, so that I'm not tempted to look at it in the evening. I've read a lot of research about, you know, what reading from a screen does at night. So I try to get into bed with a, an old-fashioned book and uh, relax that way. And uh, I don't have notifications or pings or anything like that on my phone. I, I keep the sound off. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't get those visual cues either. It's not essential for me to know what's happening on the other side of the world right now. So uh, I think that is very, very helpful to me. And another thing I have is, is that, that I try to practice is I have a lot of to-dos on my list every day. And I don't want that feeling like today is just a slog where, you know, my purpose as a human being is to get through this list. At the end of the day, <laughs> uh, you know, somebody said to me the other day, so you're done with your work for today? I said, of course, I'm not done with my work to for today, but I'm stopping. So making that distinction between when I'm done and stopping for me has been really important because if I wait until I feel that I am completely done, I'll be working till 10 or 11 at night, and that's not helpful. The other fin final thing I do, and this I can do because I do my own schedule. I don't work for someone else, and that's much harder to do. I don't book so that it's too tight. I don't book so that, oh, my goodness, if I don't make that plane, then I won't get there for this event. And, you know, only twice in 30-plus years of being on the road has that happened to me. And I think it's because I do the careful planning and I don't try to cram too much in. Uh, I think, um, you know, no, I'm not going to Dubai that day because uh, then if I don't make it back on this day, I won't get to that thing in, in Nashville, just choosing those two venues. Uh, but yeah, so the, those are the things I, I do to try to keep myself uh, balanced and um you know, every morning I pray to do my work 
in a spirit of service, contribution, and joy. And I try to remember that through the day and say, is that, is that still showing up for me right now? That's such a good point. I, you know, I think Chester and I were talking the other day. We both had seven meetings, I think, before like two o'clock in the afternoon. So just back to back to back to back. To, and, and sometimes we do. We're just like, okay, okay, next one, next one. Instead of, am I in a, s- a spirit of service? And what am I trying to accomplish today? And keeping that, as you've talked about, that common goal. So this has been so good, Sally. Um, so with all that you've been studying over the last couple of years about inclusion, et cetera, if you had a, a couple of big takeaways for people from what you've learned over the last few years, what would, our, what would you want our listeners to take away with today? I would focus first on privileging behavior over bias, not getting too caught up in what you or someone else is or may be thinking, and instead think uh, thinking about what are my behaviors, how am I acting. I think it's also really important, and we didn't get into this, but to uh, to distinguish between diversity and inclusion, we use them so you know DNI. It's DNI. Uh, we they're so yoked together, and there's a reason for that. But we also want to remember that diversity is the nature of the workplace. So uh, organizations aren't doing this because they want to be politically correct. They're doing this because this is who's in the workforce now. It's a highly diverse workforce, and this is true globally. Whereas inclusion, so that's the reality of the workforce, whereas inclusion are the practices we need to be able to manage a diverse workforce effectively because, in fact, people who are outside the usual uh, leadership mainstream are more likely to feel excluded. So thinking about it in those terms I think is really, really helpful. And then finally, just this whole idea of giving people the benefit of our goodwill and not, you know, and recognizing that just because we're triggered by something doesn't mean that we have to respond in a way that ultimately inflames the situation or ends up not serving us or anyone else. Thank you so much, Sally. You know, it's not lost on us that you're one of the great coaches on the planet. You've coached us up really well here today. We wish you all the success in your new book. Thank you for giving us your time and your wisdom and your coaching. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you, both of you, my friends. It's been wonderful uh, to be here and have a chance to talk about rising together. Chess, another great guest. Uh, we've known Sally for years, and it's so fun to to dig down a little deeper on some of her uh, coaching ideas about this idea of triggers that we all have these. Um, quit worrying so much about bias. Start thinking more about what our behaviors are. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, her book, Rising Together, I, I love the subtitle, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. Uh, great book. I've got my copy. I know you've got yours in the mail. We encourage our listeners to, to go get one. I, I agree with you on the triggers thing. Uh, to me, what really resonated was tell yourself a different story. Mm-hmm. You know, find a positive story yeah. that maybe they're reacting this way, not just because, oh, I've categorized them as this or thus and such. Maybe there's something going on at home. Maybe there's something they're doing to defend their, their heritage or their views or whatnot. Tell a better story. Find a more positive story. That really, 
resonated with me. And she also said, and then act like you believe it. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I think is pushing it a little bit more, which is good. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but really I don't believe it. You yeah. Know? And yeah. instead of, no, and then I'm really going to believe this, especially as we, you know, because that came up as we were talking political issues. And, and that's a tough one because we all fall into that. But no, act like you believe it. Another one was, okay, coming back to this idea of, unconscious bias. I think I told you I was in a, um, I was giving a training to a, you know, a good size financials company. And they said they'd just done some unconscious bias training and their, their chief legal officer raised his hand and said, we don't have any of that around here. Uh, (laughs) And and the trainer said, it's unconscious. And, And so instead of trying to beat our heads against a wall, sometimes trying to teach that, Instead, let's focus on what our behaviors should be. Um, so I thought that was really good. Uh, you know, and I also love this idea of our authentic selves um, versus our professional selves. That was interesting. Yeah, I, I appreciated when she said, look, when I was young, I didn't know who I was. Yeah. I bring my authentic self. To, I'm not sure what that is yet. Mm. And so, again, you know, that what we often say is assume positive intent. Uh, one other takeaway for me was, and you brought it up in your question about the political divide and how it can be so toxic and people aren't talking to each other at work because, well, they're red or they're blue or whatever, right? Um, this idea where you come out and say, look, we're not going to censor you. What we want you to be is, you know, just be aware, be kind, yeah. be considerate, you know, treat people well. And isn't it interesting that we have to remind ourselves to be kind and nice and that, it's that, gotten so toxic it's such a shame it is it? but it comes to that idea of humor too that we talked about for a moment and i was listening to a couple of very conservative people chatting the other day and one of them was talking about wokeness and uh, and then the other one said uh, she said uh, you know what she says some things do need to be censored <laughs> you know and they were <laughs> and just shut up the conversation you know because there are and and sally's right there are things we shouldn't be making fun of somebody's sexuality or where they're from or you know different things they're just we shouldn't have been doing that anyway so there are some things where we do need to be more aware um but you also not beat ourselves up if we misstep now and then we're all going to make mistakes with humor we we still need it in our cultures though Sure. I, I, I loved her mantra when she said, you know, I, I get up every morning and I say, you know, will I be of service? Will I be a contributor? And will I bring joy? I think that that story that you tell yourself first thing in the morning can be very powerful. You know, set yourself up to have a day full of service and to make a contribution and, and bring some joy, some levity, you know, make yeah. people smile. And you know who brings a day of service and joy to us is our producer, Brent Klein. <laughs> nice uh, segue. Yeah, yeah. Christy Lawrence, who helps us find such amazing guests. And of course, to all of you who listened in, we thank you for doing that. If you like the podcast, please download it. Please share it. We'd also love you to come to thecultureworks.com for free resources to help you and your team thrive. Right. And we love speaking to audiences around the world, whether it's virtual or in person, on the topics of culture, teamwork mental health and resilience so give us a call we'd love to talk to you at your event as well well adrian it's always a pleasure to be with you you do bring great service and you make incredible contributions and you obviously always bring the joy so thank you my friend well thank you and thanks everybody to joining us again today until next time we wish you the best of mental health 